I, I think that the the coolest thing about investigating what this like creative trespassing is to me and how it's actually impacted people in a really positive way is that we don't need to be like in a job or a field that's uniquely creative in order to be uniquely creative within the work we do. And the minute we realize that, it's like, oh, I am I'm free. I am free. And in fact, imagination is the most powerful tool I can use whenever I want. Thanks for pressing play. That voice you just heard is our guest, best-selling author of Creative Trespassing, none other than Tanya Catan. And man, do we have an awesome episode for you today. And this is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the podcast that aspires to have real dialogues, not overproduced and edited interviews with amazing people who are making our world a different place. We're sponsored by the good folks at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. And while you're there, as a listener to this podcast, you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about an event I'm super excited about, put on by my dear friends at One Life Fully Lived. One Life Fully Lived is a nonprofit that helps people dream, plan, and live their best life. And from October 12th and 13th, uh, 2019, we'll be in Long Beach, California for the 8th Annual One Life Conference. So go to onelifefullylived.org today to uh, get some more information on the conference. I'll be speaking there. And uh, other keynotes include Jeff Hoffman, uh, the billionaire entrepreneur who's been on this podcast, an exciting young investor and venture capitalist, Cody Sanchez, and my friend, best-selling author uh, of the Front Row Foundation, John Roman. So check out onelifefullylived.org, and I hope to see you in Long Beach this October. Now, Today, Tanya Katan, we have a riveting conversation about, as Tanya says, how to put the spark of joy back into your work and life. She's an incredible woman. She um, tells me about how she overcame breast cancer in her early 20s and how that shaped her life, how she went from being a theater grad to um, an executive in the technology industry and, believe it or not, the B2B enterprise technology industry and how the, she then went on to become a pioneer for women in tech. She thinks every rock star business needs a punk. <laughs> I love that. And uh, we talk about a lot more and I hope you're going to love it. Check out uh, uh, Lockhead.com for more on Tanya's background and the show notes and key takeaways from this episode. Now, hey ho, let's go. I wrote it like a conversation. You know, I come from, uh, my background's theater. So I have a degree in theater with an emphasis on playwriting. And I say that because in theater school, here's what you learn as a foundation. You learn uh, the difference between a monologue and a soliloquy. What's the difference, Christopher? Exactly. So no here's a, here's a, I'm not going to okay. lie to you and pull, pull some bullshit out of my butt. I have no idea. <laughs> okay. So the, the difference is like a soliloquy is like in Hamlet, when Hamlet is losing his shit out loud in front of a live audience, he's speaking to the air about his life and about his, you know, his mom who shacked up with his uncle who killed his father. Um, a monologue though is half of a dialogue. So it's a conversation. It's just that I'm speaking, right? And you're listening. Um, and then you might have something to say, and then I'll listen. And so to me, when I wrote, when I wrote this book, I wrote it as a, as a dialogue and a monologue. Um, so I don't necessarily, when I'm in the world on a book tour or I'm keynoting and I'm, I'm speaking about creative trespassing, then I get feedback from people who've read the book and they're like, oh my gosh. So it's their turn to talk and for me to listen. Yes. Um, but I didn't write it as a soliloquy, like I'm just waxing philosophical about how great my ideas are. And I know all these great people. That's not interesting to me. Again, like I think as a writer and as a speaker, anytime I'm putting something in front of an audience, it's, it's a gift for the audience. It's not about me, which sounds sort of weird, but that's my intention. 
Yeah. No, and yeah. It, it, you know, that's an interesting uh, distinction you've given me because that is absolutely the experience I have with your book, which is it feels like we're having a conversation, even though, of course, we're not. Um, so well done. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, you know, actually, one one quick thing I just remembered. So I actually did the audio re recording of, of the book. And uh, when I went before I went to the studio, I just instinctually. Well, first, I asked my author friends, what's it like to go into the studio? Should I prepare anything? And one friend's like, well, you know, get drunk. And I'm like, that's not going to work for me. Uh, and, you know, another friend's like, well, you know, bring some things with you that make you feel like you're at home or comfortable. So I brought photographs of my friends and family and people who inspire me and went into this teeny tiny studio. And, you know, you're, you're in a studio. You've got to have all the foam around you and it's dark and quiet. And, um, and bringing in all of those people with me allowed me to feel like I was sharing the story with them. So oh, that very was really cool. Fun. What a yeah. wise idea. And it's why it was better, yeah, better than why, getting drunk. <laughs> well, I would have liked that too, or maybe stoned or a little bit of both. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. No, I'm so, I'm like so little when it comes to drugs and alcohol. Uh, uh, let's just say that I cannot do any of those things. Wow. I know it's not. You're so little. I, I feel like a, like a child person, like a child adult when it comes to that, you know, like you want to, you want to eat an edible. I'm like, I can't even eat the paw of a gummy bear. Do you know what I'm saying? Or I'd be like, <laughs> it, is, it is funny when people go, I, I, I eat this and I'm not feeling anything. And they oh. start eating and they're like, don't, don't do that. <laughs> That's right. I know. I lived in the nineties. I'm familiar yes. with that. Yes. So I want to like right off the top of this book, I just love the dedication. You say for the risk taking misfits, who are brave enough to write fight songs on company letterhead. I don't even need to read the rest of your book. I love the fucking book. That is a magically written sentence for the risk-taking misfits who are brave enough to write fight songs on company letterhead. Can you unpack that for me, Tanya? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, I write about in the book and the reality of my life is I was born an outsider. My parents are, were basically like feral people. They were, you know how, like, you know that, you know that, uh, that term adult children of, you know, and it's usually followed by <laughs> adult children of alcoholics or adult children of abusive family. My parents were just adult children like period, yes. like they just happen to have children and they were wild and we we're all figuring out how to be in the world together. I love how and, you sort of make fun of your mother. Was it French accent? Am I remembering yeah. that right? Yeah. At, at one point you sort of say something to the effect of like, I wish I just had a normal mom who didn't have a weird French accent and didn't make me look all these things up for her and all that. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Because as a kid growing up in, in, in the United States, I had a single mom. We were super poor. She was an immigrant. Right. So we were outsiders in so many different ways. And again, growing up in the 80s and 90s, those were strikes against you. And I had no idea until it was like I tried to fit in and I tried to hide all of my outsideriness, but it was determined to shine through just like my spiky hair was like, I'm going to stick up. I don't care if you're in the workforce, uh, you know, and and so when I found myself in situations where my outsiderness or my misfitness was actually of value to the organizations and the people around me, um, I was like, huh, maybe there's something there, you know, maybe. Yeah. And, and I think that we are all misfits. We're all outsiders and, and vacillate between being outsiders and insiders, depending on the day and the, t and the context. And, uh, and so the risk-taking part, you know, we, we're always saying, you know, you know, entrepreneurship uh, and startup culture, it's like, take risks, make mistakes. Um, and then you do, and your boss is like, why did you do that? Yeah. Well, yeah, you're out of here. Yeah. Paycheck gone. Yes. And and I think that embracing the fact that we are misfits and we are flawed allowed us allow us to actually take risks and know that the outcome is always going to be better than okay. Yeah. And yeah. it's so I just love that this is what you're about. Because I I don't know about you, not maybe to get too serious, but uh I'm somebody who feels exactly the same way. Uh, which is probably obvious, but um, there is a, a flip side of this, which is I part of what I feel like you're trying to do in this book. And you'll tell me if I'm if I'm picking up what you're putting down, so to speak. But 
um, is something I also care about, which is by celebrating your misfitness and by by connecting your your different to the world in a powerful way. You're also teaching us to do the same. And I think many of us who feel like misfits go through periods in life where it's very actually painful, right? There, one of my favorite songs is the um, uh, um, Kermit the Frog song, It's Not Easy Being Green. I was just singing this, This, who are you? Are you sure you're not my real twin brother? I'm gonna call my <laughs> twin brother up and ask him. Christopher, I was literally just, just singing the Kermit de, de Frog repertoire. Yeah, it's not easy being green. Yeah, Something and you also, you have some quotes in here that are some of my favorites of all time. Um, I'm not going to be able to find it now. That awesome quote from Dr. Seuss who says, Oh, yeah, why, why, why fit in? Stand out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, love, I love this one, too. I don't know who Sol Levitt. Am I reading that person's oh, name? Oh, Sol Levitt. Yeah, he's a, a contemporary artist, yeah. Don't worry about cool. Make, Make your, your own, own uncool. uncool. Yeah. I mean, there's so yeah. much awesomeness in here. And so uh, before we get into some of the specifics, what is it about this sort of theme of kind of making it okay for people to unleash their inner punk rock or their inner misfit? Why, why does that, you know, we, it's been said that we teach what we most need to learn. Why is mm -hmm. this your thing? Why are you on this? Absolutely. I, you know, it's so funny that you were talking about being how sort of painful it is to be an outsider, which is ironic because that's where all the, you know, nobody writes films or writes books or makes software for you or about anybody who's perfect, right? We don't even, we would never go to, to see a movie if the main character was perfect. To be perfect is like to be invisible. And I didn't realize that until I became an adult and had endured a lot of situations where I felt like um, I felt less than, I felt other. You know, I, I had breast cancer, as you may know. I mean, I write about it in the book, which is kind of funny. I read, like, I read your book. I, got I know it. you did. But, but, you know, so at 21 years old. A young woman I, to have, I mean, I guess yeah. it can happen at any age, but it, it feels younger than what you normally hear about it. Yes, it was, it, it was in the early 90s when really people weren't talking about it and statistically I was kind of a medical anomaly but here I was going to school I was 21 and I had my breasts removed due to saving my life a mastectomy and then chemotherapy and then I was bald and then you know I was also just coming out as being a lesbian in the world and so walking through so wait, wait a minute I, sorry to interrupt you so God you are a bald one-breasted lesbian that's what you're I was very hot okay I, I, thank I, god I, for Sinead Thank God for, you know, Sinead and Ani DeFranco and other I always thought cool. Sinead. I still think Sinead's amazing. I know. But, you know, so, yeah, exactly. Talk about strikes against you and feeling like an outsider. And, um, and so in those moments, the only thing I knew how to do was actually write, was sort of document the stories of my life as they unfolded in front of me. It allowed me to also be kind of like a, a like my own biographer. It allowed me a little bit of distance for, you know, for when I was feeling deeply uncomfortable, scared, and just completely freaked out. And, um, and so I just learned how to write about these situations. And then as I sort of got older, I'm like, ah, the these are universal themes. It's not just me who, who's enduring uh, illness and wellness, life and death, uh, being a, a, a different body in a, a sea of same, seemingly same bodies. This is what every human being goes through and feels uncomfortable about and scared about and um, sometimes can't make it through. And so I thought, I can speak to that. I've been writing about it, documenting my whole life. Uh, so that's sort of, that's where my, my need or desire to connect with people uh, based on the universal truths that we all endure came from. And so what was it like for you to deal with cancer and deal with losing a breast at a young age? And, you know, this is heavy stuff for a 20, 21 year old gal. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I went through the stages of grieving and, you know, it's like w when you realize you're, you're in a textbook, you know, you think you're all like, oh, why am I so angry? And it's like stage one anger, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and at the time I was punk rock. So I was, and I didn't have the thing with cancer or illness is you have, there's no one to blame, right? You can't be like cancer. It's me. 
Tanya, I'd like to have a fight with you because you are so mean and bringing me down. Let me tell you what uh, an asshole you yeah. are. Yeah. So instead, I told people, I told the doctors that they were assholes. You know, I told, I, I kind of in my mind sometimes would confront people visually when they were looking at me when I only had one breast, like, what are you looking at? Is it because I have one booby? You know, and, and I had to go through this process of being angry, being confrontational, being sad, crying, noticing, you know, I'd put my hand through my hair and hair would be in my hand or on my pillow, you know, when going through chemotherapy. Uh, and you can't escape it when you're going through that. You can't get another body during a time that your body, you feel deeply uncomfortable in the body you were given. So I just had to go through it and, and thanked God, thanked energy, thanked uni the universe that I had writing and creativity as an outlet that saved my life. Yeah. That comes across in your book and, and you really, um, it feels like you are a champion for creativity yeah, I mean, I've seen it, for, I've experienced it firsthand. And, you know, a lot of what I write about in Creative Trespassing and the angle that's different from other business books is I don't come from business. I don't have an MBA or a BMW or, you know, um, anything like that. And yet I have sort of snuck into corporate culture with just my creativity and tools to engage in innovative strategies. And people love it. I've, you know, I've come from another planet with the gift in my DeLorean of, of creativity and imagination, you know, and, uh, yeah. 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 And so let's go there maybe for a sec because yeah. uh, we hear, Oh, you know, uh, what you need is a MBA and <laughs> we're living at a time where these, this, these scandals about, you know, these celebrity idiots paying all zillions of dollars to get their young moron children into whatever super ding dong uh, university and so forth. And, and here you are, this misfit with a theater degree and sort of it feels like by consuming your stuff. But maybe you'll tell me somewhat accidentally you end up in the technology industry and you didn't know what a SAS was. and You <laughs> didn't know what the cloud was and, and, you know, this this sort of stuff. And and yet here you have this incredible, thriving career. And so how does this misfit with a theater degree who can't spell SAS end up, you know, becoming the, the, the woman we know today. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, well, to the SAS point, you know, I was hired by a tech company called Axosoft several years ago because they were interested in, a, in hiring a brand evangelist. And I literally had to look, I'm like, evangelist is not a job unless you're a religious zealot. And although I think that'd be super cool, I don't know if I'm really qualified to, you know, woo! Yeah, isn't that a cult leader? Isn't that Jim, Jim Baker, Jim and Tammy Faye or something? That's right. Yeah. I don't have enough mascara to qualify for or enough tears to qualify for giant, that job. Uh, remember she had like, giant eyelashes like, that like, like flamingos. A... Yes. <laughs> like flamingos leaking out from her eyes. Yeah. So I didn't know what that was. But the cool part was, is I'm always up for a challenge. And I, I live, if, if a challenge presents itself that's equal parts exciting and terrifying, I'm like, that's my litmus for choosing that challenge. And so when I got there, I was like, I was literally first week on the job and I'm like, okay, what's this cool software I'm going to evangelize about? And, you know, I was thinking, oh, it might be like a storytelling app or this or that. And they're like, yeah, it's a project management software for software developers, B2B, SaaS. And I was like... I don't know what's coming out of your pie hole. I have, I've never heard these language, you know, I was just like, you, I got like, I think I, I thought that AI was like a British person at a pub asking for more beer. Like, Hey, I'd like another pint. I had no idea what this language was. And so I was scared actually, Christopher. And so I'm like, Oh my gosh, how am I going to add value to this company? When I really glazed over with the product that I was supposed to be, selling from the stage. Uh, and so within the first couple months, my boss was like, hey, we want to come up with an idea for women uh, in the tech field and how, you know, there's not a ton of women and how do we address that problem and all this stuff. So then I'm like, oh, okay, I can prove my worth. Uh, and I kind of got to work thinking about ideas to show uh, how women are needed uh, to be seen 
heard and celebrated for the superheroes they are in the tech space and then in every space. And um, so came up with this little symbol, the bathroom lady, and brought her to my colleague, Sarah, and said, hey, look, I've got the bathroom lady. And Sarah was like, awesome. And, and, I, and so I thought, I don't know, that triangle dress looks like a dress, but it also looks like a cape. Maybe she's wearing a cape and kind of printed out the women's bathroom vector and took a pencil and, and drew. And I'm like, oh, she is wearing a cape. And then I showed her Sarah with the cape and Sarah's like, oh, it was never a dress. And so we launched this campaign that went around the world. Yeah, it went viral. What year was it? Was never, it was, this was, was, was two. 2015, which is, yeah. So, so to answer your question, you know, here I am, this kind of knucklehead in technology who know nothing about SaaS and AI and IR and AVR, whatever, and using storytelling skills and an ability to see audience and connect and um, use visual representation to show who's missing or what lurks behind the dress. Maybe it's a cape. And so it was great. I mean, talk about a creative legacy, uh, leaving something like in good shape at a company, you know, Axosoft and I gave birth to this campaign now together. So we co-parent pretty much. <laughs> and if yeah. I'm remembering the chronology, right, and, you know, you'll have to consume, you'll have to forgive me because I consume a lot of whiskey, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I, I, I've been known to hang out with my friend Mary Jane. But anyways, I digress. Um, uh, the, when, when did the Me Too movement start? Would that be 17? Yeah. So you were a few years ahead. Is that yeah. Right? Yeah. Which was really interesting. It was a really interesting time. Uh, and also maybe as a result... You know, people were very uh, celebratory of the It Was Never Address campaign. And also what it was, it wasn't the, it, you know, Me Too is, is wildly different and, and much deeper and more nuanced of an engagement. It was asking people to, you know, to share and, and be brave enough to explore and expose their, their stories, their truths, and their scars. You know, whereas It Was Never Addressed was a proposition for people to imagine what was possible and, and beyond addressed for women or in addition to address for a woman. And actually what we literally said is, hey, here, here's the empty vector, you fill it in. What do you see? And people uh, wrote in with images of, of women in judges' robes, because that matches the frame, yeah. um, or in graduation caps and gowns. And so it was just a, a, a visual representation of, of options for women being in the world, um, as opposed to, you know, or it, you know, in addition, I mean, Me Too is like, it's so, um, it's so deep and brave and, and necessary. Um, so, you know, maybe it was never addressed was just a, it was a little hors d'oeuvre to the main course. Yeah. And where do you think we are? Uh, what's your assessment of where we are, where women in tech are, where women in business are? Sort of give me your assessment of, um, you know, yeah, I think, you know, uh, uh, from a, like a high level statistical, you know, the, the, the numbers are uh, unfortunately still similar with women in C-level positions uh, as they were five or 10 years ago. Yep. So uh, actually, um, you, I thought I read, excuse me if I'm wrong, but I, yeah. I read it's actually maybe a little worse in the Fortune 500 for CEOs. Maybe that's my optimist trying yeah. to yeah. yeah it's you know um kimberly bryant who um who started and is the ceo of black girls code i was hearing her speak once she's amazing and she said look you, you can't be it if you can't see it and i realized that you know representations of women still oh my gosh one thing i i, I can tell you on the ground a lot of times when i go into you know, startup uh, companies and um, and even universities. I'm giving given what I call the 98% tour. I've named it that in parentheses. I don't tell. So the 98%. Mean? Yeah. So it, you know, like when you go into a lot of startup businesses, you see the vinyl quotes on the wall. You know, all that borrowed wisdom from you know all, all the people we love. Uh, Steve all the Steve Jobs, Jobs quotes. P.T. Barnum and sha sha sha. Yeah. And so I started looking and really taking stock, and I'm like, wait a second. 98% of the time, 98% of the quotes are from men and white men. I'm a big fan of white men. 
my brother is one, my dad, I have very good friends who are white men. Alas, diversity in the workforce is proven, you know, to yield a good uh, for everyone. And so what I've done is I've included a slide in some of my presentations of the 98% tour. And actually, I just have quotes up and I, I show them to people and I'm like, do you notice anything weird here? Like what's going on? They're like, and and I just was giving a talk at Expedia, and a white dude was like, "They're all white men," and I'm like, "I love you, uh, yeah." And so I think that you know, by seeing who's not at the table, who's not on the wall, who's not being represented in the C-suite or on the ground, like who who's not there, um, you know, like when you see something, say something; when you don't see something, say something too. Say something, yeah. yeah. So uh, it sounds like you feel like we still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And I mean, also along the way, celebrating the moments where we're like, we're making some headway too. I, I think that that's great. It's not like, a, oh my God, we're done. We're so great. High five you. Oh my gosh. But it is like, we did good and we could do better. What did you think about um, when Jerry Brown um, enacted that law in California? And I forget the size of the company. It may just be all public companies um, headquartered in California must have at least one, if I'm not mistaken, female director. Am I remembering this right? Yeah. I don't know if it's one or if it's 50 percent. I don't I don't know. I think that any time anybody in a position of power invites everybody in and and declares that that's actually a part of the foundation for their organization or government um, that they are doing good in the world yeah i think it's awesome when people say hey this is not acceptable and here's how and and there's an accountability right like yeah. if we're like oh it'd be awesome if we had more women on the board yeah, I'm to do. trying to pull it up as we, California yeah. becomes first state to require women on corporate boards. I don't know if it was a percentage uh, or. It just, you just have to have one. Yeah. California oh, just what? first state to, to require public companies to have at least one woman on their board of directors. And wouldn't it be radical, like seriously, in this day and age, there are plenty of women who are qualified to be on boards. And in fact, uh, Athena Alliance Coco. Yes, and Coco's been on this podcast. I, I know. Back. It's been a long time. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what's going on right now. So, yeah, it's nice to have one person. It wouldn't be awesome if there was a dictum to include half the amount of people on a board. I mean, boards are like 10, 15, 20 people, you know, to have one person percentage-wise. It's, it's okay, and I think we can do better. You know, and generally, Tanya, I'm not a big fan of the government telling us what we can and can't do, yep. uh, generally. Um, on this one, I think Jerry deserves, you know, uh, a standing O. And the other one that sort of, and again, this is somebody who has fairly, and I don't get political with you, but fairly libertarian views on a bunch of stuff. Like, if you're not hurting anyone, then get out of my business. If you're hurting somebody, that's a whole other thing. But if I want to do X, and it's, you know, that's sort of generally how I feel. But um, the the whole thing about our Supreme Court, you know, when Kavanaugh, when we we're going through the Kavanaugh thing, hmm. what was going on for me was, hey, this whole argument about whether or not he did or didn't do whatever he did or didn't. That's one discussion. Great. But I think we're missing the big fucking discussion, which is why are we nominating another dude? And we have nine, uh, you know, people on the Supreme Court. And I found myself, and this may be a strange thing to say to you, but I found myself going, do we need a fucking law that says a minimum of yeah. four of the nine? A minimum of four of the nine have to be gals? Yeah. Like, what the fuck? And I, I, have you seen the, um, the amazing documentary about Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Not um, yet. I know. I know. The last person. Yep. Yep. So there's this great quote you might have heard from her. She gets asked, um, you know, when when will there be enough women on the on the Supreme Court? And she says, when there are nine. Yeah. And my, awesome. my wife has like this yoga T-shirt now that says <laughs> when there are nine. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Christopher, here's the deal. I'm voting for you if you're running for office. <laughs> I am. That's not all. I'm, for, that's all. The background that I have. I wouldn't get past think, first base. See, this is, you know, you're actually proving something every once in a while. I'm like. If this whole, you know, public speaking, writing, consulting thing doesn't work, I'm just going to run for political office. And then my lady says, your mouth is so foul, there is no way 
You it's can... why I love this show, Veep. Oh, I love the way her character love. talks. And She's like, great. Not that I'm ever going to run for public office, but if I were to run for public office, it'd be like, hey, just so you know, any fucking bad shit they said about me, I probably did that shit. I yeah. drink too much. I swear too much. I say things I shouldn't. Forget it. So, like, if you think you're going to out me on some horrible thing I said, yeah. fuck it. You've, I did. You've say already it. outed yourself. Yeah. Exactly. You like preemptively were disgusting. It's like when when um, Bush two was running when he sort of said, "Hey, listen, there's 15 years there where I was drunk. I don't know what I did. So, fucking don't ask me." <laughs> That's a good out. That's a good out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, there's so much in this book, uh, but I wanted to start, if I could, with uh, Rule 11, outgrow adulting. Hell yeah. So tell me about outgrowing adulting. Well, what do you what, mean by that? First of all, who, like, who came up with the word adult? Like, what does that even mean? And, <laughs> and the more that I, I actually like aged chronologically and the more I realized, oh, I can still be playful and happy and bring a sense of joy to adult things, the more I realized adult was just bullshit. Like, that yeah. it, was like it was like we got a, a script in the mail of how to be an adult and we read over it and i'm like okay uh the performance is set for saturday the director's out of town uh my lines are yes i will pay my bills on time oh i'm going to buy a house oh i think i need a lawnmower and a kitchen aid and now i'm ready to adult you know and that's just a lie i mean it, being an adult to me means being mature enough to integrate all the parts of your life and, and not have this separation or these silos between I am work, Tanya. I am adult, Tanya. I am fun weekend, Tanya. I am punk rock, Tanya. I'm just Tanya. And this goes back to your initial thing about branding, you know, this idea that like I'm a certain way in a certain context. The, you know, we, we, we throw around this word on like authenticity or being our authentic selves. To me, being our authentic selves means being ourselves regardless of context. Yes. It's considering context and it's bringing in the things that we want and that relate to the people in front of us. Um, and it's also not excluding parts of yourself. I think this is what the problem is. A lot of times, you know, in American culture, we have, you know, weekends and weekends seem to be times where people like get effed up and vomit and party and what and paint and dance and, do and vomit on Tuesday if you want. That's right. That's right. That's what I do. I, I, I call it effed up Tuesdays. No, but yeah, but I mean, that sense of playfulness, if we relegate it to a, a specific time and space, then we're just, we're, we're cheating everyone out of our awesomeness for sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, yeah. Adulting. It's just a, it's just a, a another silo, man. Just another I, I silo. Love, I love that about what you're saying because for years I've thought it was absolutely asinine, like this concept of work-life balance. Yeah. And the reason I think it's asinine is it it, it, it supposes a context called there's work, Tanya, and there's yeah. rest of life, Tanya, and you're trying mm -hmm. to balance between the two when in point of fact, some, sometimes you are going to be out of balance. You are going to work 80 hours, 100 hours a week. You're finishing your book. You're going on a tour. You're doing this thing. And it requires that level of work. But then, you know, there are times where we need to back it down. And, and so it's just, it's more of the ebb and flow of life. You're not a different fucking Tanya at work, to your point, than you are on, quote unquote, the weekend. Totally. And, and actually, that was part of the impetus for me even writing Creative Trespassing is because I would like I would give talks at companies and and conferences and there'd be like thousands of people. And I would talk about, you know, artists and creativity and doing really disruptive programs while I was working for companies yeah. and how successful they were. And people would like rush the stage afterwards. Like I was a nerdy rock star and <laughs> they would say things like, you know, in hushed tones, they got to look around. They're like, I have a degree in theater too, or I like to paint on weekends, or I like to crack jokes at open mic nights, you know? And, and I yeah. realized there was a disconnect between our creativity and our work between like who we are and what we do and i thought that's just bullshit that's not true and in fact if i can show people how to bridge the gap between who we are and what we do then people have a choice to be free even during the hours of nine to five that they don't have to choose you know focusing all of their awesomeness on two days a week and why do you think people feel like and maybe not all people but some people feel like 
it's risky to, I, I love this other one, rule 13, crash the company picnic, right? It, it's risky to unleash their inner uh, misfit or however you want to yeah. describe it at work. There's such a strong human drive to fit in and to not be um, what you're describing. Yeah, it is risky, but anybody who's done anything of note has taken a risk to disrupt the patterns and habits that are keeping everybody stuck and that are, you know, actually trying to solve problems that maybe nobody's looking at in the company. So it, it's a risky proposition. But at the end of the day, the most important thing that to remember and, um, and that I, I preach and teach is that you have to be honoring the mission and the vision of the company or organization that you're you're working for if you're doing that how you get there doesn't matter and also if you're able to quantify and qualify what you've done to impact the bottom line of your company and organization who cares if you get pushed back or if you get pushed down that just means you're on the right path yeah. you know yeah and I've and I've been, I've received a lot I mean I, I haven't been just like skating through corporate culture and everybody's like high five tanya i'm so glad you challenge you're just running around the office with a videographer we think that's awesome yeah they think you know i've been definitely um boards of directors have said we're concerned that tanya is not working but just having fun as if the two are mutually exclusive and so i learned how to to, to quantify to show the numbers yeah to show you know anyway yeah, it, it, it's, and it seems like maybe the bigger the organization, the worse it gets, although I'm sure it's true in some startups as well, but um, just sort of this need to fit in. The other one I'm curious to ask you about, my my friend, the entrepreneur, David Cancel, who's the founder of Drift, he talks about a lot of smart things, but one of them is um, uh, how much he's against consensus. Hmm. Oh, Totally. How, that somebody should be pissed off and be disagreeing significantly with every meaningful decision that happens. Cause if not, then we want, we skated to this safe place. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a lot in your book, I think that people could look at and go, you know, like you said, rule 16, fire the hierarchy. Well, those hierarchy, those, those dominance hierarchies are in place because the people at the top of the dominance hierarchy like being there. And if you're the person who says, fuck the hierarchy, you're at tremendous risk of getting fired. And it took me a long time to learn this, but you know, one of the biggest fears people have in life is being fired. And so how do you, how do I take your advice, particularly if I'm somebody who doesn't want to get fired? <laughs> yeah. So actually in that chapter, one of the uh, exercises or productive disruptions that, you know, is, is uh, to give a, an official, unofficial award. So for example, within a hierarchy culture, right, you know that um, you're familiar with employee of the month. Yeah, yeah. This this construct. So that that's a hierarchy, right? HR there and and all the you know your your boss and your colleagues are all sort of weighing in on whether or not you're worthy enough to win employee of the month. And so I I actually what I, I decided like I entered a company and I'm like I would love to win employee of the month. That sounds fantastic. And HR is like Tanya, you don't win it. Like you earn it. And I'm like, well, then I will earn your vote and win it. And I launched a full scale, like Tracy Flick political campaign to win employee of the month. I ran around, I ran around the company. I got the signatures. I got a petition going and I turned it into HR and they looked at me like I was a crazy person and the board of directors, like she is a crazy person. And, uh, but what they, they started to realize is, oh my gosh, she's engaged in play. She got to know her colleagues. She's alive in the joint. And, um, I got an email from everybody in the company, you know, those crazy emails that are like all company meet in the boardroom, 10 minutes. And I was like, but it was pointed towards Tanya. And I'm like, huh, this sounds scary. I think I'm going to be fired, but I have to go in. And I walked into the boardroom and they opened the door and everybody was eerily quiet. And there was a video camera aimed right at my face. And the head of HR said, Tanya, we would like to present you with something. And they all, they brought out this plaque that said, almost employee of the month. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized, oh, that was so amazing. They saw what I was doing. They responded with play. And so in the book, I'm like, look, you don't, you can decide who you want to give 
awards to. You don't have to wait for HR to approve it or for like marketing department to say, oh, we need this logo on it. You could just get a, an envelope from, you know, the, the shared uh, materials closet and, and write out, a, you know, this is the in inclusion visionary award because you bring in cool people and make it easy to vision together. You know, you don't have to wait to have a, a sanctioned award. You can just make it and give it yourself. So there are things like that that are not going to get you fired and that are going to actually make your colleagues a whole lot happier and you happier for being having the power and authority to just acknowledge somebody for work well done yes amen hallelujah sister can i get a what yes you can <laughs> thank you the other one i i don't know how to give people this gift but uh i realized in my 20s that um most people have this terrifying fear of getting fired and i i don't i i've been fired a shit ton um and uh i don't give a fuck like it, yeah. it, it, i i really don't um and so i i don't know how we help people with that but i i i, I do look to your rule 19 if all else fails keep rehearsing and I will forever, Tanya, be fascinated by the connection between failure and success and how much, you know, my own personal experience, like failing makes me want to just throw up, right? It's just, it's so horrible when you're in it, when you have failed. And yet the truth is, we learn so much more typically from failing than we do success. I think we do learn some things from success, no question. But uh, the pain of those failures, at least for me, motivates me and educates me. Um, and, and the bigger and more publicly embarrassing the failure, the more it hurts, but yet the more value it delivers. And so I guess all this, you know, if all else fails, keep rehearsing. Can you unpack sort of your thinking around failure and, and, and this notion of rehearsals? Yeah. So coming from theater, that whether or not, you know, you take months, sometimes years to put a production together when you're ready to actually be on stage and offer it up to an audience. You don't know how many people are going to show up. You know, that's not like part of the equation. Like we've put together a very fine show. We guarantee that 200 people will show up every night. And so, you know, whether two people show up or 2000 people show up, your job as a performer is to give the best show you got in yet. That's your job. doesn't matter actually. And, uh, and so I've learned the hard way, the, the, Oh, oh my gosh. I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, which is like, I, have you ever been to that? It's, they're literally- I haven't, but I hear it's an incredible thing. Okay, hundreds of thousands of people from around the world show up and there are thousands of performers vying for an audience. And I was like, the year I performed, Joan Rivers was performing. So let's just say I wasn't getting any audience. Not that I'm comparable, but you know, they're big headliners. And so I was like, and the streets handing out pamphlets, you know, about my ship saving Tanya's privates. It's a show about boobs, the ones you date and the ones you lose, you know, like it was just crazy. So <laughs> I, I, I show up for the, and it's a, it was a one-woman show about enduring two rounds of breast cancer, and uh, and at the end of the show, I would take. I, off I love that you were telling people it's a show about boobs. Look, you've got two seconds. I wanted to like get. I want to get everybody cast a wide net, right? I love it. Uh, and so you know, it, I showed up the fir first night, and it was what one-woman show. So just me for an hour and 20 minutes, no intermission. And I'm like, ready, you know, the lights dim. And then I, they come up and I, I say my first lines, you know, cancer, cancer. And I'm like, cancer, I have cancer. And then the lights in the audience come up and I see the audience who will take this journey through boobs with me. And it's three dudes and one's drunk totally. And one's like falling asleep and one's like, okay, I paid some money and I want to see the show. What am I going to do? Hide, you know? And so I gave him the best show I had in me. And my yeah. goal was each night, I just wanted one more person to come to the show. That was it. And it worked. And one more person came each night. But again, it doesn't matter. And in fact, Samuel Beckett says something years ago that entrepreneurs quote all the time, but they missed one word. It's, um, it's ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail better right? But they miss, they always focus on the failure. They never focus on the word try. And to me, you know, success is trying in the face of failure. That's what success is. It's knowing that we're going to fail. So if we keep trying and we keep learning and we gather information, then we're succeeding every time. So there's no failure. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I believe for a long time that success is a function of failing in the right direction. 
and it may not be the success we thought. It may be orthogonal, but there's some somehow. I don't know. I mean, I I don't want to sound like I've lived on the West Coast too long, but there's something about applying oneself in a direction in a committed way where the universe does reward that it may be over here on the right or the left of the direction we were going um it may not be the success we thought we were going to have necessarily but um it, it would appear that sitting in your ba- your mom's basement drinking beer farting is probably not gonna generate <laughs> we'll generate more it. farts yeah yes, exactly I think it's a fart generator now there's so much goodness in this book but there, uh, one i also wanted to ask you about claim your non-conformity at the door yeah. So tell me about that. Again, you know, again, I entering into any space and simply submitting to the rules and regulations without questioning anything is a, at, it's at the detriment of yourself and the company that just hired you. People, the more you realize that the more goodies that you have on the outside of the job that you bring in, the more helpful and disruptive you will be um, by nature. So the nonconformity, like what, what is it? What is, I mean, what does conformity mean to you, Christopher? Like, what does that mean? Like, it means fitting in. Right. And so do we see anybody who's fit in? Do they become a part of the landscape or like another book on the bookshelf that we no longer see the, the cool design cover of? Um, and, and a lot of times, you know, I work with a lot of people who are embedded in tech culture yes. and um, and don't necessarily feel comfortable, uh, like, sh- like sticking out. But embracing your nonconformity isn't about being an extrovert or, or standing out. It's about understanding your skills and your ability to imagine and um, and using that for your job and your tasks. So actually something that I've learned uh, working in contemporary art is that artists ask what if questions. And so this is to me, those are the, the most nonconformist questions to ask. What if what I'm looking at here is not, it, what if I turn that symbol upside down or inside out or around? What if instead of, you know, launching a brand campaign online, we launched it in outer space? What if, so it allows us to dream and imagine beyond the rules and regulations. We already know what, what's tried and true, so why not try something else? So that, that's, to me, the nonconformity part, you know? I mean, and this is something people get scared all the time. They're like, well, you know, but what if, I, what if I try something and I get fired or I get reprimanded? And I'm like, well, have you tried conforming? Yes. How's that working for you? Not so much. Why not try something else? That's it. It's a proposition to try something beyond what you know to be true and not working. It's about getting unstuck, right? You already know what it feels like to be in a holding pattern. What happens if we disrupt that pattern? Yes. Yeah. And it feels like so much of your work is inspiring and giving people permission to step out. Absolutely. Well, and not me giving them permission, but them seeing that they can take permission. Yeah, it, it's it's and, you know, and there's a, you know that phrase, uh, take initiative. I've thought about that for a while. It's like initiative is just waiting there, you know, and it's and and it's you've got to take it, you've got to grab it and do the thing, and see what the outcome is. You don't know. You, you, this is you why don't. you know this word over time, this word empowerment's gotten mm. fucked up. I think because like, oh well, I wasn't empowered to do that. Right. What? what? Empowering is something you do to yourself. Right. Absolutely. We, well, my boss didn't. I'm not empowered. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. Empower yourself. I've, I, yeah. I've, I've definitely been in, a, in situations where I've like been a blamer. Like, I can't do my job. I don't have any budget. You suck. Like, you're not. This isn't a creative environment. I can't be creative in this environment and all that stuff. And then I learned, oh, wait I lo- a second. I to interrupt you, but I love the yeah. way you move. Why, thank you, Christopher. Watch this. Yeah. What? Are you gonna Are you gonna take it? I'm gonna pop and lock right to you. <laughs> Child of the '80s. I've got a cardboard box. I'm gonna spin right now. No, I'm kidding. I, I could though if I needed to. I, I bet you could. Oh my gosh. Now, Tanya, is there yeah. anything else that you would like to touch on? You know, I, I think that the the coolest thing about investigating what this like creative trespassing is to me and how it's actually impacted people in a really positive way is that we don't need to be like 
in a job or a field that's uniquely creative in order to be uniquely creative within the work we do. And the minute we realize that, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm free. I am free. And in fact, imagination is the most powerful tool I can use whenever I want. Basta. So I, I, that's really it. I want to, uh, you know, hopefully the book will, um, when people are like, oh, well, what, what do you hope the book will do? I'm like, I hope it will cause a creative revolution in the workplace. Amen. Hallelujah. Because so many workplaces are a life-sucking vortex of creativity. and <laughs> Totally. Totally. But then, you know, what the, the cool thing is, is once you start saying like, actually, I, you know, I've been giving unofficial awards or I like to do these creative things, you realize there are creative trespassers all around you. A lot of us are like laying low. And um, one dude that I interviewed in the book, he's the senior vice president of a Fortune 100 company um, who was actually in a punk band, like headed a punk band. And he talks about all that, how those skills were transferable to corporate culture. He's like, if I need to get somebody's attention, now I'm at a podium giving a talk in corporate culture. I know how to do that, you know, and, and also embracing the D. DIY culture of punk rock, you know, and, and taking initiative. So all these people who've done really cool shit in the world. Um, my friend, Elizabeth Cutler, co-founder of soul cycle. She didn't wait around for like, you know, Hey, maybe somebody will come up with a great idea to do, uh, to do something that enlivens your body and your soul. Uh, and, and she started in the beginning of of the recession. What? crazy her and julie rice uh, she just is like i think Such this a is a good idea i so want to take great. a risk yeah so and great. it and it and it paid off not because she was looking to make a gazillion dollars but she was looking to make herself and those around her happy and do two things at the same time explore ourselves physically and emotionally and in a spiritual way and i've done soul cycle and it works <laughs> it's i mean it really feels what you it's like it's if you do you drink wine at all uh, I've been known to knock over a uh, whoa a, a two buck shot or two. Oh, oh, fancy pantsy. So, okay, what, why don't you start with like a hundred dollar bottle of wine and then go back to a two buck chuck? That's what Soul Cycle does. It it f me up for like doing because I did. I felt like oh my gosh, I feel like my I'm being fulfilled in many ways, not just one way. So, yes. just saying. Yes. Anyway, all the good people are taking are taking risks. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Tanya, I think you're an incredible light in the world. Uh, I think we all need to be inspired. I think to your point, I can't remember exactly how you say it, but we, you know, we need an example that we can then be inspired by, take, and then, you know, build ourselves from, right? Yeah. Um, And it's very clear you're doing that in the world. Thanks, Christopher. Takes one to know one. Well, and I'm super stoked for your success. Like it, you know, oh, be thanks. easy to look. It'd be easy to say, well, shit. If you're trying to make this happen in the world, the world might not, you know, it might not want to hear from you at first, right? Yeah, it's and it's those are actually the people I want to be in front of, and that I find myself in front of. Like I was giving a talk to like thousands of people in manufacturing. Yeah. You know, and some people will leave that talk and be like, why did they bring her here? And I'll be like, because I'm manufacturing joy. Bam. No, <laughs> but, you know, and, and some people aren't ready and that's cool. That's fine. And some people are like, we've been waiting for you. We've yes. been waiting for these ideas because these ideas we've either had and no buy-in and we didn't know how to execute on them or we've needed to know, you know, how, like what's possible so that we can reimagine what's going on here. Yeah, it's been you know, awesome. The other thing that's on my mind is uh, it it has to be somebody like you in a, in a sense because <laughs> like who who's going to shake up the world around creativity? Is it going to be a 55-year-old overweight <laughs> bald dude wearing McKinsey-esque khaki pants with pleats? Probably fucking not, right? That's not that's not who you hire to come and shake shit uh, up, right? Yeah. I think anybody who's wearing pants with pleats not ironically might not be the right person anyway yeah it's, it's like hey guys Ma, although Ma, the, to hide your your well the, the the young adult yeah the young adult ladies they love the mom jeans but there's a little irony there <laughs> um so yes I, I i look i you know again it's just like i can't i'm i'm just being me in the world and that happens to be an awesome conduit for creativity and i've done the shit that i'm that i'm preaching about 
Like I've literally done it. Um, and I've had the, the privilege of meeting people who've done it, who are more high profile than myself. And um, it's possible. It's we're doing it. We're doing well, the it. Big learning I take from you. And this is a thing that I want to learn over and over and over again in many different ways. I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't love this expression, follow your passion. I really do no. think it's about follow your different. It's figure out what mm. makes you different and unique. And then, and the second part's equally important, connect your different to the world in a powerful way. And your, so your different needs to make a difference, needs to be viewed as important, right? So it's not just enough to be, oh, different and weird and interesting and creative and whatever. But the second piece of connecting your different to the world in a way that makes an impact is, mm-hmm. is, is so to me, it's two pieces, right? What is, what is your different and how do you, how do you discover it and pursue it and follow it and all that? And then how do you connect your different to the world in a way that it matters in a way that is interesting in a way that moves something forward in a valuable, hopefully exponential uh, way. And that is something you've been able to do when, you know, a lot of people, haven't and i think a lot of people don't even try that's real i love that uh, you're you're different and using that as as a catalyst and also realizing that you're different is everyone's different if you really if you're talking about universal truths right this idea of feeling other this idea of mortality this idea of being alive in the face of death we are all experiencing this. This is something, you know, we learned in theater is how you can, the more specific you are in telling your story and identifying your difference, the more universal you are. And that allows for us to connect with other human beings um, and puppies as well. But, you know, but, you know, and the environment <laughs> and all the things <laughs> Don't forget, and chickens and hens and all the, all the, um, and all the things that breathe and live. Uh, but you know that this idea of of knowing that I am different and you're different and ha- where those that's where we're forming um, bridges and ways of helping each other heal in the world and grow. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Tanya. You're incredible. I love this book of yours. Thank you so much for writing it. I know what it takes to write a book like this, Aww. and uh, I really appreciate that you wrote it. And um, you're welcome back anytime. Christopher, thank you so much. What a treat. And I'm going to talk to my twin brother and see if he's really my twin brother or you are Christopher. Yeah. Well, you certainly have the hairdo that if I had hair, I would want to have. (laughs) And if I didn't have hair, I would want my head to be nicely shaped like yours. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, Tanya. You're fantastic. Take care. Tanya Katan. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, as you know, in business, you got to know your numbers because if you don't know your numbers, you don't know what's going on. And more than ever, to, more than ever today, <laughs> we need to stay on top of our seminal numbers. That's where NetSuite, the number one company in cloud ERP, comes in. Imagine having every critical number you need to manage and grow your business at your fingertips, on your smartphone, anytime anywhere. NetSuite makes that happen. With some amazing dashboards, you can stay on top of sales, orders, finance, accounting, inventory, and even HR. Thousands of the best-known companies and brands, particularly fast-growing companies, use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you, and it's surprisingly cost-effective. And I want you to know, you know, NetSuite's been with us for a long time right now, and um, we will never have a, a, a sponsor on this podcast that isn't a company that I believe in. And one of the things I love about NetSuite is this is a company uh, that is deeply committed to helping entrepreneurs grow their business. This They've really become the platform for uh, companies from the garage to the IPO and beyond for facilitating your growth. And that's why I'm stoked to have them with us. And that's why I want you to go to netsuite.com slash different. While you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your your industry as a listener to this podcast. So check out netsuite.com slash different, and you will always know. 
If you want to get a hold of us, uh, send email to blackhole at lockhead.com, uh, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. And if you want to check out what my 15-year-old nephew calls my weak social media game, <laughs> I'm at Lockhead and at Lockhead on Twitter and Instagram. All right. We would like to thank Tanya Katan, our awesome guest today in her red hot book, Check It Out, Creative Trespassing, How to Put the Spark and Joy Back into Your Work and Life. Let's not forget OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And our eighth annual conference, October 12th and 13th in beautiful Long Beach, California, 2019. Come and see us. The incredible bestseller, the number one bestseller, Niche Down, How to Become Legendary by Being Different, with uh, written by Heather Clancy and none other than me. Check it out. Um, now, if you're a growth-oriented person and entrepreneur, why not check out GrowWire.com? This is the new place on the internet for people who want to grow themselves and their businesses. Now, speaking about growing yourself, one of the most critical things we have as entrepreneurs is our time. And if you want to get back some time, why not consider the power of a virtual assistant? Check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants, bottleneck.online. And um, do you, like me, live in beautiful Santa Cruz, California? Is it time to take your fitness to a whole new place? Why not start training like it matters with my friends at Paradigm Sport? Train like it matters, Paradigm Sport. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network, and we'd love it if you just shared the shit out of it every once in a while. Why not? <laughs> As a side note, make no mistake, your shares, your word of mouth is the number one thing that drives our growth. You've made us a top 30 business podcast and uh, databird research called us one of the hundred outstanding podcasts on the planet and i can't thank you enough for your love and support and for telling people about this podcast or podcast that is uh, i must warn you that uh, clearly we get produced in a studio that does contain nuts remember to teach people creativity don't be lame get out of the passing lane in many states in the united states going slow in the left hand lane is illegal don't forget to listen to 80s rock music. Do some thinking about thinking. Thank you so much, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. Hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Dennis Mullenberg, CEO of Boeing. Sorry, Dennis. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. And until uh, we're together again, stay legendary. And of course, follow your different. Follow your different.